Again, thank you so much for being here. This morning we're continuing in our study of Matthew. And we're talking about, remember, Matthew has been given this charge, gifting and anointing by the Holy Spirit to identify To prove and to illustrate that this man, Jesus, is in fact God's promised Messiah. The first promise beginning in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman who will come to crush Satan as to his authority, as to his head which we see that same, if you would, understanding repeated in 1 John 3, 8. For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose to do what? And I can't say it softly. To what? Destroy the works of the devil. And that's what he does at the cross. And that's what he makes real to us beginning on the day of Pentecost through the power of his Holy Spirit. And so we're talking about that mission that Jesus came to establish God's will to bring about the accomplishment of God's creative will when he created man in his image to be his image bearers. Now Jesus is the image of God bringing about the eternal will of the Father, so that the Father's creative purpose in Adam and Eve, even though they sinned and forfeited that purpose, is now going to be reestablished in his people. And so that should tell us this, God's purpose cannot and will never be overcome by anything or any combination of things, people, or demons whatsoever. Can you say amen to that? God is comprehensively, absolutely, continually, consistently sovereign. And that should help us a whole lot. Because I know that many of us, all of us, from time to time, go through storms. And the biggest question that is asked, no matter how it's phrased, are you still there? Is God sovereign? If we answer that question biblically, truthfully, then all the rest of the question can begin be falling into place as the Holy Spirit gives us revelation and understanding, right? That's the question. Is God sovereign? So this morning we're talking about the advancement of the kingdom and last week we talked about the mission. This morning we continue by talking about the opposition to the laborers. Last week the laborers that are raised up for the mission. Remember the 12 disciples, apostles. Jesus raises up laborers to go into the field of harvest. The field is plentiful, but we don't have many um, the laborers. So pray the, the Lord of the harvest that he will give us many uh, laborers. And so Jesus appoints 12 disciples. This morning we're talking about the opposition to the laborers. The laborers will be attacked. 
And we see that immediately in Genesis chapter 3, don't we? We can't teach the Bible without teaching Genesis and making sure that everything we understand in our Bible is based on and is a function of and an outflow and an, and a re... Uh, well, what word I want, and, and is an, uh, the accomplishment of what God does in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. And so immediately when Adam and Eve are created, and when I say immediately, I don't mean in the time frame, but at least in the sequence that God gives us in Revelation, opposition comes in. Opposition comes in. So for the laborers in the kingdom, for those of us who are saved, there will be opposition. Gen- John sixteen thirty three. In this world you will experience what? tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. So let's look at it. Father, minister this morning as you always do. Minister to us, Father, by your Spirit. Teach us, encourage us, embolden us, mature us, correct us, lead us. Thank you, Father, for the joy of knowing you. Because of the death and resurrection, the exaltation of the Son, sending the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Thank you for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you remember in the previous verse of last week, Jesus told the disciples that he was sending them into the field of harvest, into the world as sheep who were going to go into the world as sheep among wolves. Now, we talked about why sheep. Why did he call us sheep? And what is it about sheep that he is identifying that our need of the Holy Spirit's power? This morning in the first set of the verses that we'll look at, 17 to 31, Jesus is going to explain certain types of persecution. General types of persecution, not every persecution, obviously. And as he does this, he's going to also talk about the response of his disciples. There will be persecution, and when the persecution, and as the persecution comes and continues, we are to respond in particular ways, and Jesus will enumerate some of these. Now, what we need to be careful of as we look at this particular section of Scripture, the persecutions that Jesus will mention in these Scriptures were persecutions that these disciples themselves experienced in those first many years of the birth and in the growth of the church. They experienced much of this. In fact, many of them experienced all of these. But what we need to make sure is this. Even though those persecutions occurred at that time, it doesn't mean now that we will experience different kinds of persecutions, but those were persecutions that not only occurred then, but they were the type of persecution that will continue throughout the age of the church. So let's not make, let's be sure not to relegate that, well, that was for them, that was for them, and that was for them. It was for them, but it's also for all who call upon the name of the Lord. Now, that should make us feel good because we are all going to experience these kinds of things. And isn't it nice to know that we're not going to get out of any of this? But as we look at this, let's remember this. We have been given power by the Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus said? Stay in Jerusalem and wait. Why? Because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, for what purpose? To be my witnesses. Where is that? 
Acts what? 1, 8. You will receive power. So what we're going to talk about in these verses is the power to deal with each kind of persecution. That's how I felt the Holy Spirit leading me today to deal with this, to emphasize that part. So first of all, let's look at verses 17 to 20. Power to proclaim. Power to proclaim. Let me read the scripture. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness up before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of my Father who is speaking through you. So first of all, as Christ's image bearers, we can expect various types and levels of persecution. You know, in the world today, and we are just a fortunate people, at least in this respect, in the natural way anyway, we are not experiencing usually arrests and trials and beatings because we take up the name of Christ. But there are many in this world today who are experiencing these kinds of things and even death, mutilation and death. We see it all over the place. This is becoming now a much more common issue. Not common as to its activity, but I think common as to its revelation. We're finding out more and more that more and more believers are actually being persecuted. This has always been the way, but we're finding out through social media and so on, we're more aware of this than ever before. And so, although many of the first century believers experienced these persecutions, these are the common kinds of persecution or the opposition that will occur to any of us and to all of us from time to time as we, as we proclaim the name of Christ. So Jesus assures his followers that they are not to worry about how they will respond to charges leveled against them. But the Holy Spirit will give them power. He will give them power to answer. We are becoming very quickly in this country, when I say we believers, the minority, and maybe we have been the minority for many years. And I'm not talking about those who are members of churches and who go to church. I'm talking about those who have been born again by the power of the Spirit and who are genuinely God's people in the world. And so we're going to be confronted regularly confronted with the issues that surround us on a regular basis. And so, someone may ask you, David, do you believe in same-sex marriage? Do you believe in transgenderism? Is that what this is called? I don't get all the terms, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Where do you stand here and there? Your friends the folks you work with, others are going to want to know as believers where we stand. Who are we in these issues? Is it okay for homosexuality to exist? You know, is, do you believe that's okay? Do you believe that 
<clears throat> the Bible needs to be conforming to the mores or the development of the culture and needs to be, quote, updated and brought out of its old, archaic, ancient ways into the modern world. We're going to be challenged by this. We need to recognize that the challenge is not sourced in the person or persons or the culture. But there is one who is behind all of this. And his name is Satan, the devil, the deceiver, who is generating in the culture and even through some of our best friends or maybe even family members, the opportunity to put us in a place where we need to make decisions and we need to declare ourselves. So what do you say when someone asks you, do you believe, Sue Ellen, do you believe in same-sex marriage? Annette? Do you believe in, you know, this idea that a woman can become a man, whatever, all these choices, and that little children need to make the choice when they're... Do you believe all this? Where do you stand? How do we answer? Well, I think obviously, primarily, mostly, we need to be led by the Holy Spirit. May I say that first? But let me, allow me just to at least give a thought to you. If someone says to me, Peter, where do you stand or what do you believe or are you in agreement with? Whatever the term is, these, any of these issues, whatever they are. What do I say, Julio? Well, yes, I'm, I think, you know, I'm against homosexuality. I'm against same-sex marriages. I'm not going to say any of that. I'm not going to say it. You see, because I am not interested in expressing my opinion and making me the target, because I am not the target. The Word of God is the target. So what I'm going to say, TC, is something like this. I believe what the Bible says. Well, what do you believe? I, I believe, Bob, what the Bible says. What does that do? It pushes them to find out first what the Bible says. And they may ask me, Charles, they may ask me, what does the Bible say? Well, I'll be glad to tell them what the Bible says. And I believe what the Bible says. Because, you see, I don't want to make Peter Davidson's opinion or even standing the issue. I want to make the word of God the issue. So when they are disagreeing, they have to disagree with what the word of God says. That's just how I do it. Not saying that's you better do it my way. Because I always want to point them to the source of what I believe and why I believe what I believe. So don't get into any debates and fights and yells and screams, but trust the Word of God. And when they begin to question you, trust God that He will give you the wise and discerning and ministering answer, and that you will be able to speak the Word of God to these people. Because what happens when you begin to speak the word of God? Hebrews 4, 12. What does that say? Somebody knows what Hebrews 12 say? What does it say, Mary? 
Good for you. The word of God is what? Alive and powerful, active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts asunder. And it divides soul and spirit and all of that. You know, it gets down into the very marrow of our being. And so let the Holy Spirit be the one who challenges the people. But if we are going to do that and to the place that we do it, here's the problem. We have to know the Word of God. We cannot come, and you've heard this illustration many times, to a sword fight. And the enemy takes out this gleaming sword of culture, of man's opinion, of the ways of the world. This gleaming sword that looks like it could kill any of us. And we pull out a little pocket knife. The sword of the spirit. As we submit to him in the study of the word. Let that be our weapon so as we draw out that sword, not only is it a sharp sword, but it is so shining and so on and brilliant and powerful in itself that we don't even have to wield it. The Holy Spirit through us will wield it against and cut down all the arguments. Now, in the process, we may be attacked. We may be vilified. We may be imprisoned. We may be whatever. But mostly, do we stand for the word of God? We are quickly coming to that place in our society where the true church of Jesus Christ is going to be more and more identified and pointed to as narrow-minded, bigoted, unloving, etc., etc. We have to be ready. Now, what happens? In the midst of this, not only do we have the power to proclaim, but we also have been given the power to persevere. Because have you ever noticed that when things are going wrong in your life, one of the primary temptations is this. Am I going to make it through or I don't know if I can put up with this or I can't continue this way? Or, and all of those thoughts about lack of perseverance, meaning getting all the way to the end, making it to the end, all of those come into our minds. So let's look at verses 21 to 25. Brother will deliver you over to death and the father, his child and children will rise against his parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all by, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You need to underline that. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Now, this is not the first time Jesus will say this. This is a recurring theme throughout the scripture. Enduring to the end. Getting to the end. Remaining faithful to the end. When they persecute you in one town, get out of town and go to the next. <laughs> For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciples to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, you know, like you're a devil, you're a demon, or you're from the devil or whatever, how much more will they malign those who are of his household? You see, the opposition to Christ will also come from within the believer's own family and cause some to be tempted to forsake the faith. Now, you may not want to raise your hand on this, but you may if you want to. How many in this room 
have experienced opposition from family members and friends because of your testimony of Christ. How many? How many? Many. And you see, this is perhaps the most difficult opposition of all. So what do we do with this? It causes us, if we're not careful, and hopefully the opposition won't be that they throw you into jail and have you killed or whatever, although this is, that day is coming, and it is that day in many parts of the world. Hopefully we will persevere through this. See, Jesus reminds us that the one who endures to the end will be saved. Our ability to, pre- pers- our ability to persevere in affliction is a proof that our faith is genuine. Our ability to persevere to the end is a proof of the genuineness of our faith. Listen to what James says. James 1, 3 through 4. The testing of your faith attacks difficulties, problems, tribulations, killings, maligning, whatever the attack is. The testing of our faith produces steadfastness, perseverance, steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, meaning mature, and complete, lacking in nothing. Why are we being persecuted? Well, we know why from the devil's perspective. Satan's purpose in persecuting us is to destroy the testimony or undermine the testimony or weaken the testimony of Christ in us. We know Satan's purpose, but what is God's purpose? God's purpose in this is to cause the roots of our faith to go deeper into Christ. Now, what happens typically when rain doesn't fall in such an area as this? We're not talking about deserts. And we don't get a whole lot of rainfall. What happens to the roots of these great trees? You know, these big old oak trees, these live oak trees. What happens when the water table begins to descend a little bit because of the lack of rain? What do the roots do? They go deeper to find the water. And as they go deeper, the tree is more and more stabilized. We have a very large oak in front of our house. It's 150 to 200 years old. This is a mama. And the branches extend way out into the street. And so during Hurricane Katrina, about 8 o'clock in the morning, the winds really picked up, and they came in from the back of the house and blew toward the front of the house. And I don't know, probably 120, 30-mile-an-hour winds, right? And the trees like this. And Gene says, you think it's going to blow the tree down? I said, I don't think so. You know, it's lightning or whatever. But we're talking about... Then... About 11 o'clock, don't you remember, it's about 11 o'clock, the winds changed, and they came from the opposite direction, and the tree does mm, this way. But all the tree did is move a few of its old branches and a couple of its weak areas, but it withstood the attack. Why? Because you see, through the various seasons of life, the tree's roots 
grew into the soil more extensively and more deeply, being rooted and grounded, as the word says, using Frank's terminology when he quotes the word, that we may be what? Rooted and grounded in the love of God. That's what persecution is about for us. Satan desires to destroy. God desires to build up. So can we see something here that we need to see about persecution? Now, I need to hear this because the next time I'm persecuted, someone pulls in front of me on the street and doesn't go as fast as I want to. I mean, let me tell you, this is severe for me. Well, I get a light when I need to get somewhere, and the light catches me. Right, Jody? I need to remember this. I need to say what James says. Count it all joy. Why? Because, you see, this is the loving. These persecutions come, listen to me how I say it, through the hands of a loving, wise and good God, knowing what we need, knowing what we need, and allowing us to experience it. No persecution comes to us except through the authority and permission of God. And in the midst of the persecution that comes to us through the authority and permission of God, the Holy Spirit is there with us in the midst of the persecution. Just like in Luke 8, Jesus was there in the boat with the disciples. And when he said, we're going to the other side, what did he mean? We're going to the other side. And guess what happened? When the persecution came, the winds and the waves came, and the disciples were scared to death, Jesus got up and rebuked the things, and they got to the other side. Yeah. You see, we will persevere to the other side. Why? Not because we have intrinsic ability and stamina and whatever in us, but we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't you see? Is this one who overcame the absolute greatest and worst issue of our lives, our deadness, our rebellion, our rejection, our death, our whatever. Is this one who overcame that in us and saved us by his mighty power? Is he able to keep us through the little breezes that go along in our lives? He's overcome the worst storm of all. The worst storm. There was no worse storm. And we are here today because he saved us out of that storm. The wrath of God against us because of our sin. And he brought us into the ark of safety as he did Noah and the family. And let the winds and the waves strike against and lash the ark. But we are saved in the ark to get to the other side. We will persevere. Why? Ephesians 2.8 tells us. For by grace we have been saved through faith. And for by grace we will persevere through faith. And that faith is not of your own, but it is God's gift. Remember what the word says, so that no one will boast. You see, our perseverance shows that God's preserving power is at work in us. This means that the proof that we are saved is not 
only connected to how we began, but also includes how we end. What does Jude 24 say? Now unto him who is, now listen, Jude 24, if you don't know it, write it down. Now unto him who, oh God, I hope you're going to do something. Oh God, I'm, I can't make it through. Oh God, I hope, I, now unto him who is able to keep you from falling, stumbling, going away. Now when Jude says that, what is he talking about? And to present you what? Blameless. Keep on, let's say, and what? Before his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior. What else, Phil? Be all glory and power, praise, dominion, etc., etc., and etc. But did you get it? If you don't know it, Jude 24 is a very important verse. Now unto him who is what? Able. You see, if we put the issue of our perseverance upon our own obedience, we will fail. The power of our perseverance is not in our obedience. It's in the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he applies the power of the risen Jesus Christ to me and activates that power in me and in you with which I now will grab a hold of maybe very weakly, but just even maybe fingertips sometimes, but we're going through. We're going through. You see, I am not, confident that I'm going to be saved to the uttermost because I can persevere. I'm not confident at all in that. I am confident that I will get to the end because God will preserve those whom he has saved. It's an issue of whether I'm going to trust me or whether I'm going to trust God. It's the same issue in being saved. Am I going to trust the one who died on the tree? Or am I going to trust in another way? And it's not by my work of perseverance. It's by God's work of preservation, which I have embraced when I was saved and which God continues to embrace through me by his spirit unto the end. It's a strong matter. It's a strong matter. The power not to fear. Verses 26 to 31. The godly reaction. To, how are we supposed to react to all this? Jesus says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who will kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Remember, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. 
Fear not, therefore. You are more valuable than many sparrows. I'm just looking to see how much more. You see, Jesus knows that persecution has the potential to cause his followers to fear and to waver in their relationship and in their trust in God. This is what Hebrews is all about. Have you read the book of Hebrews? It's all about this. You know, Christians battle and, and, and debate for years. Is this written to Christians? Is it written to non-Christians? Well, some of them are Christians, but some of them are not Christians. May I give you my opinion on that? And I hopefully I could substantiate something of it by the word of God. I believe this letter, or actually it's an oration, it's a speech, but whatever. This letter is written to believers. And the persecution coming against these mostly Hebrew believers, mostly Jewish believers, is severe. Severe. And the writer is saying, don't fall away. Don't fall away. Don't apostatize and go back to Judaism and forsake Christ. Because if you do, you're going back into shadows. You're going back into that which God is not doing anymore. Christ is the fulfillment. Stay with him. But if you do apostatize, if you do go back, you will forfeit your salvation. He doesn't say if you go back, well, God's going to do this. I believe he says if you go back to Judaism and reject Christ, you will forfeit your salvation. I believe that's what he says. But I believe he gives it to the disciples or to the believers Not because he fears that they will, but as an encouragement not to be overcome by the temptation. As a means of engendering their faith and their boldness and their trust and their continuance in Christ. Even through it all, this man, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives them the most profound warning of all. If we continue to sin after having received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more what? No more what? No more sacrifice for sins, right? And then in verse, this is chapter 10. And in the verse, I think it's 23 or 28, I've forgotten. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's not saying they will do it. But he is warning them against such a thing. And by the way, to warn doesn't mean that this will happen. That's going beyond what the word says. And then he said, but we think better of you. You know, therefore, let us continue. Don't fear. Be more fearful and reverential and respectful of God's presence in power by the Holy Spirit than in the enemy's ability to cause us trouble. Be more respectful and trusting in God's presence in power by the Holy Spirit than in Satan's ability or attempt to cause us trouble. Amen? Don't fear. Don't fear Satan. Why don't fear? What does it mean? Does that mean that, that we are to fear God and who will destroy us in hell? No. We're not to fear God that way. Why? Because Romans 8.1 says what? Now, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Our fear is to be in God. And this is not a fear that he's going to cast me into hell, but it's a reverence and a respect and an awe of his ability and of his power to do what he will do in each of us. In verses 32 to 39, Jesus reminds the disciples that they are only, there are only two responses to him each of which will be revealed on the day of judgment. There are only two different responses to Jesus. And persecution reveals the genuineness of the fruit. Persecution reveals the genuineness of the fruit. Many who say, false professing, that they are believers, and even are doing religious things, will be shown not to be saved. Is it possible to cast out demons and to do miracles and to speak evangelistically and thousands be saved and not you're saved yourself? Is it possible to do great and mighty works of God and not be saved? Well, certainly it is. Everybody's read Matthew chapter 7, 21, and so on. Not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, but what? Those who do the will of my Father. Well, didn't we do this? We cast out demons. We work miracles. Jesus said, depart from me, you wicked. I never knew you. You workers of iniquity. I what? I never knew you. It doesn't say I knew you and you slipped away. It says I never knew you. And there are folks in the church, hopefully none sitting in this room, who are not saved. This is not a matter of I was saved and that I did enough wrong and I got unsaved. That's not what that verse says. Jesus says, I never knew you. He didn't say, I knew you one time, but now too late. I don't know you anymore. He says what? I never knew you. I never knew you. It's a revelation of the genuineness of our faith. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5, regularly go to God and what? See if you examine yourself to see whether you be in the faith, meaning the Christian faith, or in the in, in Christ. Regularly examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Second Corinthians thirteen five. So acknowledgement or denial, one of the two. 32 to 33. So everyone acknowledges me before men. I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But everyone who denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. As Jesus' disciples, our lives are to be a living acknowledgement. It means homologeo. It means confession. Same thing. Acknowledgement. Confession. Same acknowledgement or confession. Jesus is Lord, no matter what the circumstance. Remember that great story in Daniel chapter 3? And the three boys are brought into the king. And the king explains what's going on. You better bow down and all that. They said, we don't need to know all that. We ain't bowing down. We're not going to bow to Satan. And even if we die, we are still not going to bow the knee to the enemy. You see? We're not going to. And when the king finally looked into the fiery furnace, what did he see? A fourth man like the sons of the gods. Like the son of the gods. A fourth man walking with them. You see, we have the fourth man not only walking with us, but what? Walking in us. First John 4, 4. For greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. There is no temptation. 
May I repeat that? There is no temptation. May I say it one more time? There is what? Just one word. No. There is no temptation. Think of the temptation that bothers you the most. There is no temptation that can overcome us unless we let it and embrace it. Satan has no more authority. He has the power to lure. He has the power to deceive. He has the power to lie. He has all that power, but he has no authority. So we, authority is in Christ now. And now we don't have to bow our knee to Satan as we had to before we were saved. But now in the power of the Holy Spirit, every time we are tempted to think, to do, to go, whatever it is, we can say in a Holy Spirit empowered word, No! To that temptation. If you're still being overcome by your sin and being beaten around, you have not exercised your prerogative in Christ. Let's exercise our prerogatives in Christ. What is it? No. Satan, you cannot make me sin. I had to say it several times just yesterday. You're not going to make me do it. I'm not going to fall for it. I will not go that way. I will not think that. I will not feel that. I will not whatever that. I'm not going to do it. How can I say that? 1 John 4, 4. For greater is he who where is in me, Daniel, than he who is in the world. See, we just need to rise up and exercise the authority and the weaponry that God has given us in Christ. We have it all. His name is the Holy Spirit. Then finally, does this mean that some under extreme pressure, a believer denies Jesus by whatever activity that he's denied by Jesus? What happens if under pressure you deny Jesus? Does that mean you're thrown out of the kingdom? What is Luke Chapter 22, verses 31 32 say, Jesus says, Peter, you're going to deny me. But I have prayed for you that your what? Faith fail not. And when you are converted, Jesus didn't say, I hope you're converted. Let me tell you something. When the Son of God prays for us, it is accomplished. When you're converted. And so what does Hebrews 7.25 say? We have one at the right hand of God. Whoever intercedes for us. Amen. We have that Savior. Who when we are being tempted. Intercedes for us. Now what that looks like. I'm not quite sure. But we have an advocate. We have an intercessor. And his power and glory is greater than our weakness any and every day. And it is that intercessor who keeps us on the road to the end through his preserving power. At the end, Jesus says, I've come to bring a sword and so on. You know, we're going to have all kind of separations in our families and our friends. The gospel is a gospel of peace to those who are being saved, and it is the gospel of sword splitting in half those who are being rejected. And then the last two verses, Jesus summarizes the gospel. 
whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him. It means God the Father who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives to one of the little ones a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will be he will by no means lose his reward. Isn't it interesting? Jesus talks about levels of reward and levels in heaven and levels of punishment in hell. What is our great reward? Remember what the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 15? I am your great and exceeding great reward. Remember that? I am your exceeding great reward. But even as God the Father is our great reward, there will be levels of reward and activity and responsibility in heaven. There will be levels of that. So why persevere? Why have no fear? Why be bold? Why acknowledge Christ? Because as any father gives, has great joy in giving his children blessings. How many of you know that the most excited person on the day of Christmas Day are the parents of the grandparents? Right? I can't wait till my sweetheart opens her present. That's how God is. He can't wait to give us presents, rewards. And we seek the reward. Why? Because of the joy of the Father who gives the reward. Amen. Not the reward in and of itself, although that is an element. But the reward of the joy of the one who so wonderfully and lovingly anticipates and waits for the day to give us all things in Christ. Amen. Next week we'll go into chapter 11 and talk about John the Baptist.